When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you've been watching How To with John Wilson on HBO over the past few weeks, then chances are you're just as obsessed with it as I am. And you also know it's kind of hard to explain. So I'm going to let John do it himself. Hey, New York. HBO is having a hard time uh, explaining what my show is. Uh, so I, I just figured that I'd just try to do it myself. Usually the host of a TV show is uh, right in front of the camera. And you can see exactly where the uh, voice is coming from, which I guess people like. But in my show, you never really see the host. And that's because I'm actually behind the camera the whole time. Uh, filming everything you see. So, instead of having to uh, stare at me for the whole program, you get to see all the cool stuff that I, I like to film instead. Which I think makes it a lot more exciting to watch. I spent a lot of time uh, walking around New York, trying to find the answers to some of life's biggest questions. Sometimes I uh, talk to people that I, I meet out in public and ask them for their advice. Other times, I'll just open up a door and see what's on the other side. <clears throat> and every now and then, I leave town for a couple of days and explore what uh, other cities have to offer. But at the end of the day, I always uh, come right back. It's kind of like that show Planet Earth, uh, but if it was only in New York and uh, David Attenborough was forced to film everything himself. So stick with me. And I'll show you how to solve problems uh, that you didn't even know you had. Because even if it looks like you've got it all figured out, there's always a million ways to get it wrong. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and I can't quite believe that we have John Wilson on this very special bonus episode of the podcast. John is a New York-based filmmaker who sort of stumbled into landing his own HBO show, mostly thanks to comedian and Nathan For You creator Nathan Fielder, who serves as an executive producer. How To with John Wilson really is one of the best things I've seen all year. And the season finale, which airs tonight on HBO, is particularly special. I couldn't wait to get John on the podcast to help explain how he made this perfect gem of a television show. And now I can't wait to share it with you. This is my conversation with John Wilson. Sorry, something very strange just happened. I got a very weird package in the mail that I'm trying to make sense of. <laughs> okay. It's from the Waste Management, the Department of Waste Management. <laughs> and it's just, it's like a hat and, and there's no indication of who it came from. Maybe they just wanted you to have a, have a hat. 
I, yeah, that would be really nice. It just, it's something, I don't know. I'm always, I, I, I get very, I, I'm just naturally suspicious. <laughs> I don't know. My, my friends often pull pranks on me and I, I, I don't know it was a prank until years later sometimes. <laughs> so thanks for doing this. I have to tell you, I came to your show a little bit late. It was, it had been on for a couple of weeks when I started watching, but I had just, it, basically everyone in my life just started telling me you have to watch this show it's insane it's so good um and you know once enough people tell you that you you start watching and i i have to say i agree and now i'm one of those people who's telling everybody in my life that they have to watch it and i'm just become kind of obsessed um so so thank you for that oh yeah Thank you. It's really funny. I see people, I've seen a couple of tweets online from people that have the same experience as you, only when they finally watch it, they hate it and almost resent it because of how <laughs> many people told them to watch it. So yeah, it could have, uh, you know, it could go either way. Yeah. And I, and I was also a little bit worried that talking to you would kind of break the spell of the show because it does kind of feel like a, a magic trick watching the show. But I just I couldn't help, uh, you know, reach out and, and see if you would talk to me because it's just I think there's just so much obviously that went into it. Um, and I'm just excited to, to talk to you about it. So, I mean, to start, because we're talking now when the show's been on for a few weeks and when this comes out, we'll be around this time that the finale airs. What is the feedback that you've been getting like, you know, from people either in your life or just random people since since it premiered about a month ago? The reaction has been really interesting. <laughs> I don't know if I want to say that, actually. Well, now, now you have to say it. When you say, I don't know if I want to say that, that means... Yeah, that means right. Well, yeah, good. I mean, the morning... <laughs> The morning after the the pilot aired, a lot of people that I used to date all texted me around the same time. <laughs> really? I think just because I speak about my previous relationships in that episode, and it's kind of a revealing episode, and and um, I think <laughs> they had uh, it was just like a kind of a, a flood all at once, and it was it was nice to hear from everyone again. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Sorry, this sounds very strange. <laughs> The, no, no. The the reaction has been really interesting because when I when I release something, usually it's it's often I would always self release stuff on Vimeo. The the reaction was always kind of predictable. There would be a few diehard fans that would share it, and for the most part, it would just kind of have a very kind of unremarkable premiere on the internet. I just kind of wasn't prepared for it to become a conversation among people that I don't really know. You know, I, I, I would always just make these movies for, you know, originally I would just screen them for my roommates, you know, and that was the only real kind of audience reaction I would receive from these. And then over the years, I would show them at maybe a festival or a small venue. But it's it's just been really shocking to see people respond positively to the work because I was afraid that it was going to be too niche for prestige TV audience. But it seems like people are really thirsty for something that feels real. Absolutely. And it's also the kind of thing where you you spent a long time making these six episodes, right? I mean, a lot went into it. So it's kind of like this long process of making it. And then all of a sudden, they're all going to be released within six weeks. And that must be strange, too, to kind of like now have it all almost all out there. Yeah, I'm sad it's almost over, you know. Um, but it's been really rejuvenating to see people respond to it online because, you know, I've seen each episode a couple hundred times. <laughs> yeah. And I I was just so tired of each episode by the end of the editing process. And I, I couldn't even, like, I could barely find humor in it anymore. And, you know, maybe that's just part of the editing process for most people. 
But it's been really refreshing to see that, oh, yeah, this is funny. And it reminds me of the first time that I watched assemblies of the episodes and how exciting that felt to me. So, yeah, it's it's been a long time, but I, you know, I'm used to spending a long time on these things. You know, usually historically, I would spend about a year just filming casually to make a 10 minute episode uh, or a 10 minute movie. You know, with this, we had to obviously scale up. So I had to make, you know, six 30 minute episodes in a year and a half or so. But, you know, and I wasn't really sure how to do it at first. Nobody was. We had to kind of learn along the way. And we tried a lot of stuff that did not work. But everything you see on screen is the stuff that did. Is there something, that, is there an example of something that didn't work that that didn't make it in that you either wish had or, you know, you kind of, you thought it was going to be something special and then didn't end up making it in? Yeah, you know, at one point during the pilot, you know, I, I, I put hidden cameras inside of like a shoe shine store and um, I wanted to see what the kind of small talk was like in, in an environment like that and how that affected the relationship between like the shoe shiner and the person with the shoes. And there was one funny part where this one guy didn't make any small talk with the shoe shiner and then paid and walked out. But he didn't realize that he had accidentally dropped uh, like 20 bucks or 50 bucks. I forget what the bill was. And the shoe shiner didn't chase after him to give it back to him. <laughs> he actually kept it. And I think that was I, I, I thought that maybe that was because he didn't make small talk with the guy, but <laughs> it's hard to tell. But yeah, you know, little experiments like that just pepper throughout each episode. And sometimes you'll see the beginnings of it in an episode. And I just tried to, I try to follow each thread for as long as I possibly can until it's exhausted. And um, you don't always see the end of that thread, but sometimes you see the beginning of it. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, doing hidden camera because it does seem like that's really not what most of the show is. It's you, you know, holding the camera and being there, even if we're not seeing you. But are there moments in the show where the per then, where people didn't know they were on camera? Yeah, I mean, some of the, I mean, a lot of the sidewalk footage. Right, because you're sort of far away and... Yeah, a lot of the B-roll was filmed surreptitiously. But, you know, after you shoot it, you approach the person and you... You know, you tell them what you're filming and maybe even show them the clip and then ask them for a release. And more often than not, they sign it. That seems like that must have been a huge part of this and, and hard to imagine watching the show that you actually got releases from all these people. But I mean, you you had to. <laughs> yeah, it was a colossal challenge. It was something that I didn't I thought this would have been the biggest hurdle, like while scaling up. Because when I was doing it alone before, I never really had to worry about image releases as much because the stakes were so low and my platform was kind of, it wasn't viewed by that many people. So I was worried that we would like that, that yeah, image releases would be a big thing that would make something like this aesthetically just impossible, but it actually wasn't, you know, and this is where all the money and all the time went, you know, people ask like how like, you know, like the money isn't on screen, you know, like, you know, people are confused. They, they wonder how an HBO show could look so pitiful, but all the money and time goes into making sure that everything is real, you know, and making sure that because you can you can fake any one of these shots, you know, but spending the time find things that you couldn't ever really invent. 
is the real magic of the show for me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, for me, the the magic trick that you're doing is this is linking the the voiceover, your voiceover script with the images that we're seeing and sort of and lining them up. And I know that was sort of a hallmark of your short films that you were doing before this as well. How does that actually work? Do you just have a, uh, do you just build up a massive sort of um, archive of, of clips that are organized in a very obsessive way? Or, or how does that how does that come together? Yeah, I have I have a method that I I kind of taught to my assistant editors where I like to lump things, you know, I like to keyword every shot, you know, that it tells you very plainly what's in it, like time of day, maybe the season, exterior, you know, interior, sidewalk. There's that process, but then there's the process of kind of of thinking more abstractly about the material. So, I like to have a I like to have a timeline that is only you know, only footage of, of awnings or, you know, street signs or like vanity plates or, um, you know, dog shit, just whatever. Once you have enough of something and you, and you recognize a pattern, then it becomes its kind of own sequence. So I I have those that I'm constantly pulling from, but I also have like the editors and I, we each have our own separate, just like favorites, you know, sequence of because we all have to look through every single piece of footage and we all have multiple times, which is, you know, and we have a psychotic amount of footage. Yeah, you, you can tell. Yeah. So so we each have our own string out like a sequence of just our favorite shots, you know, the, the most either inherently funny or inherently beautiful, just shots that we really want to see in the show. And then let's say we pick a shot of, you know, someone doing something funny that on its own, we need to, it doesn't work on its own. So we have to then basically, you know, I'll write a gag leading up to that moment where that's the punchline, you know? So it's, it's kind of this reverse engineered process where, but you know, it isn't always like that, but that, that's like the, that's something I could point to as like a process thing. You know, as I said, it's hard to people have been recommending this show to me and now I'm recommending it to people and it's hard to describe for sure. And it's definitely hard to describe why it's funny, I think, but it is so funny. And it really, you know, this is my, this podcast, I talked to comedians and I don't know if you would consider yourself a comedian, but this is a definitely a comedy show in a lot of ways and is, and there's just so much comedy in it. So how do you, how do you think about that in terms of striving to make this stuff funny and in addition to being, you know, um, everything else that it is and it's sentimental at times, it's, you know, thought provoking at times and all that, but how do you think about the comedy of it? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it just so happens to be a comedy, but I approach the work as a documentary first and foremost. It may sound silly, but I, I do consider this like the highest form of documentary in a way. I, I just wanted to basically invent a genre where I could do all of my favorite things from nonfiction and fiction films, but yeah, mostly nonfiction. And when we pitched it to HBO, we pitched it to the comedy department because because people thought the stuff was funny, but I'm not really part of the comedy world. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't know many comedians, you know, Nathan is, is, is much more dialed into the, the world of professional comics. Yeah. Nathan Fielder, he, he came on as a producer when you were pitching it or sort of before you were pitching it. Oh, he came on way before we started pitching it. I was not prepared to pitch this without someone like Nathan. I mean, I didn't have ambitions to to have an HBO show, you know, like I didn't really, my career, my entire career has been this Mr. Magoo kind of thing where I just, I'm just blindly walking from place to place and end up meeting people. And I try not to over plan too much. 
so Nathan and I met actually by chance a couple of years ago. And the night we met, we just started talking about each other's work because he had seen something that I did. And he wanted to, he encouraged me to pitch, to basically come up with a concept for a show and pitch it. And then he set up all the meetings and we went, you know, I went to Hollywood and uh, we pitched it to four or five different places and HBO obviously uh, I think had the best deal because I like HBO and they also don't have any commercials, which is very cool because I don't like the way that commercials end up making like turning your turning up like what should be a, a single film into like a four act thing, yeah, like into a three or four act thing, you know, and, and, and I really don't like the way that affects the art. So that's why HBO is great. But I would have been laughed out of every single room if Nathan <laughs> wasn't sitting right next to me. Yeah. You know? Um, you know, his show is also one of my favorites, Nathan, for you. Were, was that something that were you very sort of tuned into what he was doing as well when when you met him? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I was a I was a gigantic fan uh, of Nathan for you um, before we met. You know, I would watch it religiously with friends just because I thought it was one of the smartest television shows ever made. I never thought we would really occupy the same reality. Uh, but here we are. And he has, I don't know, he's taught me so much. He is so good with story and obsessed with realism. And um, he is great when you're trying to fight legal battles. Is there a story you're thinking of when you when you say that? Well, it's nothing specific that I, I feel like I'd care to talk about here in the show. But just like finding little loopholes in in what is legal for us to do and show. He's really good at, at kind of finding those loopholes. I would imagine that's why, uh, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen brought him on as a, as a writer for his uh, Showtime series, Who is America, for some similar reasons that he's he's good at that stuff. Yeah. Totally. Um, one, his influence, um, you know, the influence of Nathan for you, is, I think, is definitely felt in that first episode, especially in the relationship that you form with this guy at MTV Spring Break. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and and sort of how that happened and developed and, and really became the heart of that that first episode, How to Make Small Talk? Yeah, so I was, you know, I tried out a bunch of stuff, like I said, for the Small Talk episode, uh, some things that didn't work out, like the shoe shiner thing. But I went to the travel agent to book a vacation and she ended up having, you know, it ended up being this really wonderful scene where she like opens up to me and she is talking about her you know, previous marriage. And, you know, I, I just let her talk for as long as she want, wanted to. And I didn't expect for that, you know, and I was planning on going to Cancun because that was just like another part of my small talk arsenal to go on vacation. And then I was going to go there. So I'd have something to talk about when I returned. And when I got there, obviously, there was the MTV thing going on. And I was clearly overwhelmed. And I wanted to find, you know, and then I, I met the guy in the lobby who was rapping and I realized at that point that he was also there alone and yeah. And then we just, he was kind of hard to get a hold of after that night because he lost his phone. So I would really, I would really just have to like, I would see him intermittently walking around, but I knew that I kind of wanted to get to know him a bit more and, you know, figure out why he came alone because I thought that was really peculiar and then we had that conversation on the beach and we both said things that felt like we needed to get off our 
chests. Yeah, I mean, it's such a powerful and and impactful moment, you know, especially when he's telling you about his, you know, losing his a friend to to suicide, and that sort of is what made him go down there. And it's it's just one of many unexpected kind of you know moments that that happen in this show. And I heard you say that you know it was uh, Nathan Fielder who who kind of said he wanted to have one at least one moment like that in each episode where you something just that you you sort of can't believe that you got this on film. So how did you, how did you approach that? And maybe we can talk through, um, you know, some of the other episodes, what moments really stick out to you that you maybe even in the moment when you were capturing it, couldn't believe it was happening. Yeah. So we try to have at least one moment, you know, one unbelievable moment in each episode, at, at least one. And, uh, sometimes you get multiple. Yeah. It's, it's hard to know when these things are will happen or where to find them, but it's kind of just a numbers game. Just the more things you try, the more people you talk to, the higher the probability is that you'll get something exceptional or honest, you know, from someone that is just something you've never heard before. You know, that's like the biggest rush I get making this work is the thrill of maybe seeing something that no one has ever seen or hearing something that no one has ever heard and capturing that for the first time in a way that it hasn't been captured really. So I think we would have, if we didn't capture something one of a kind for each episode, we would have just kept shooting until we found it. But it just so happened that these things naturally, organically occurred. And it's kind of terrifying to think about how much sheer coincidence goes into making something like this because it makes it you think that it, that must be impossible to replicate especially if you're not really going in with a with a concrete plan and just kind of seeing where things lead you yeah i i, I you know when i was like because we had like a, a, a semi-formal writer's room for the show and i wrote down which topics i wanted to focus on and maybe some people i wanted to talk to or some subjects that i i i, I wanted to talk about but like it was very loose and I'm amazed that HBO put as much trust in us as they did because it was, you know, a lot of the time it would be me walk, walking around, just walking into random doors and there's a van of people a block away ready to emerge with, you know, image releases and stuff like that. Or or to help you out if you need help. Yeah, but yeah, thankfully I didn't really need that much, I mean, that much help. Before we move off the unbelievable moments, I feel like I have to ask about the uh, the moment in How to Cover Your Furniture that has gotten a lot of attention, which is the, the man who, who shows you his foreskin stretching device that he's created. How did that happen? And what were you, what was kind of going through your mind when he started showing you that? Yeah, it, it, it seems like people are reacting very strongly to that. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't sure how it would be received. Um, <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny that, um, the episode about covering your furniture had all of the most graphic parental advisories at the, <laughs> at the very beginning. Right. But you know, I can't say we didn't warn you. But yeah, so I saw the anti-circumcision billboard in Union Square when I was going to the Petco. And I talked with that guy for a while. He gave me the number of the TLC Tugger guy and told me that he made the device that could regrow your foreskin. So I reached out to him and went to his house and filmed that whole scene. So I was already kind of emotionally prepared for what I saw. So, you know, people ask, like, you know, how did you keep your composure or whatever? I knew exactly what I was getting myself into. And, you know, I also wanted to see it. 
just because, you know, I was really excited to see what this guy's domestic life was like. And I did not expect the pulley on the bed. That was <laughs> that, that was not advertised on his website. That was a homemade device. That was maybe just, just for him. That's for him. Uh, maybe not for his wife. <laughs> the thing seems to work. I mean, he was a circumcised person and he has a big foreskin now. Like it's... <laughs> Right. I mean, people ask people just because people asked if it worked and it, you know, and I'm just so confused when people ask that because like, You're like you, you can see that it works. There's, yeah, there's HD genitalia. Right. I mean, you can <laughs> see it right on screen. You know, it's right there. Obviously, it worked. So I mentioned Sasha Baron Cohen, who I think you maybe there's been some analogies drawn just because he also interacts with real people. And I thought it was really funny. My my mother-in-law actually had watched the show before I did and, and described you to me as an inverted Borat. <laughs> I think I think by that she meant that you were uh inverted trying, like an inside yeah, out man. Yeah. Like uh that you were trying, you know, to not to expose people in the way that maybe he does, but rather to humanize them or show something about them that that we wouldn't otherwise see. So I was curious what you thought of that analogy. And do you feel like there is a sort of fundamental difference between what you do in relation to what someone like he is doing? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess people compare it to whatever they're familiar with. So if people compare my stuff to Sasha Baron Cohen's work, that's fine. But like, to me, it it's it's something completely different. I like to give the microphone to people that usually don't have it in a, in a way, just because I, I feel like we're just, we've had the same kind of diet of TV characters for <laughs> so long. And I just think that we're just so like, whether or not we realize it, just so bored of all these cliches. And um, it's even if the person isn't, is, is just like a totally normal person, like it is exciting to hear a, a new perspective or a new idea. I, I don't know how to, I, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's a very, it's very basic. I don't know how else to put it. Just like, I like to give people time to speak in their own words and everything is just over edited these days. Even in the new Borat, I like, they had that whole political theater thing with Rudy Giuliani. And I, I, I just wish that it wasn't as over edited as it was. You want to see, you want to see what really happened. Yeah. And I'm, it just makes me feel like they're trying to obscure something. I did like that movie more than I, I, I thought I was going to like it, but. um. No, I know what you mean. And it's, it's what, you, what you're doing, I think is so different because it is, it's letting, although of course we don't, we don't know what we're not seeing, but I think, you know, as you've said, you really are trying to show reality and that's, that's not necessarily what a movie like Borat is is doing it's creating a it's really creating a fiction with real you know moments yeah and and i i just want people to feel comfortable and when they're watching my stuff and kind of know and believe that it's real because it's like i don't want there to be any of that tension in my work where you're trying to figure out what's real and what's not um because i, I feel like that's what takes the fun out of something that has more of like a prank element to it like you're not sure where the narrative in Sasha Baron Cohen thing begins and ends sometimes. And you can't tell like, and so much of the comedy relies on the tension that is produced by like a, a real life situation. And if you can't tell if it's real, the tension disappears and it, it, it doesn't have the same comic effect. So like, that's why I, I just like, I want to start from the same place with every kind of subject and just 
let people know and give very clear indications that this is a real person in a real situation, just so you know it's okay to be sad or happy like and and know that this is like a real situation. Yeah. The other really unique thing about the show, I think, is that you appear almost entirely in voiceover and we get maybe a few glimpses of you along the way. But that's really not something that that I've seen before and that and it's not something that you usually see in shows like this, including like Nathan for you, for instance, where he plays a much larger role. Is that just how you're more comfortable or do you, is that a decision that you made and why do you prefer it that way? I don't want to shoot myself because I, I feel like I'm the least interesting part of the image. That's another thing is the imagery that we've become used to. You expect to have a kind of a host to anchor the image, you know, but there are so many more interesting images to be made and like so much more visually exciting things to do. But I don't want to diss anyone that does that per se. You know, it's like, I love the way Nathan does it. Like Louis Theroux is one of my favorite like BBC documentarians and he's always front and center in his stuff, you know. I love that stuff. Billy on the street also came to mind as someone who runs around New York talking to people, but he's very front and center. Right. But it's it's a different thing. You know, I want the imagery to be the star and I just want it to all be really rich and unique. And I, I want to produce images that haven't been made before because that's that just like supercharges the whole piece for me. Like, because I don't think that we just need another dope on camera. <laughs> telling you what you're looking at, like just pointing at stuff. I, I don't know. I, I'm just a dope behind the camera, I guess. But <laughs> So I, I don't want to spoil the finale for anyone who hasn't gotten a chance to see it when they're um, hearing or reading this. I think it's safe to say that the coronavirus starts to creep into the reality of the show in a, in a way. Um, so how did that affect you know your ability to finish this show and what made you want to really make that a a part of the a show in this final episode so the coronavirus shutdown started in the middle of the production of the finale basically every single production shut down but the beauty of my show is that i can continue to shoot by myself without any one around and there's no dip in production value because it always looked like shit. Yeah, you kind of made a pandemic proof show. Yeah, it's it's kind of yeah, this thing where I, you know, I, I am taking on the kind of a lot of the liability myself and I didn't always tell them what I was doing. So sorry, HBO. Uh, but <laughs> I realized that it was like a kind of a very decisive moment for me where I, I, I realized that I needed to capture as much of this in real time as I possibly could because every single day was like things changed so quickly and people's attitudes about what was safe changed really quickly too. So not to spoil, hopefully people have seen it by this point, but that whole section where I'm walking through the grocery store and there's that massive line, looking back at it now, it's a really fascinating document to me because basically nobody was wearing masks. Some people were wearing gloves. I realized, you know, like the supermarket rush right when the shutdown began was probably the biggest super spreader event of all. Everyone was doing the exactly the wrong thing. Yeah, exactly the wrong thing and in really tight spaces. And everyone, I'm, I'm amazed that I didn't get it, you know. And even, even like the guy at the yard sale who I was talking to, who was trying to sell me the bust of JFK or whatever, who sold me, like I was trying to buy a pot from or a, a, a pan from him. There were these two twins and... Uh, I was talking to them in that little back room and asking them about the coronavirus. I forget what the date was. It was like around the 12th of March. And 
he said, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, it'll pass. And then I panned to his twin brother. And I think in that moment, I later found out that he was, I think, I think he had coronavirus in that moment because I checked their Instagram like a week later and he was like hospitalized. Oh my God. But he's okay now. I see him around the neighborhood. They're both fine. But yeah, I didn't really know what kind of danger I was putting myself in, but it was just something I felt like I had to do. Yeah. And I mean, and so now you have this show that really captures New York in a way that it is not that it doesn't currently exist because in this in the early episodes, then this transition period. And I know you've continued to shoot footage since wrapping. Um, Do you have an eye towards what you would want to do with this footage that you've been shooting sort of throughout and during the the pandemic in New York? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I, I never stopped shooting, even though I don't currently have the green light for another season. Uh, you know, this is just my resting state. I just don't want there to be any gaps in coverage, no matter what, just because this is such a kind of a strange, precious time in New York right now. And yeah, I have like multiple episode ideas that I'm just shooting. And I just some of them are kind of motivated by the limitations put in place by the virus. And who knows how long this is going to go on for. But I don't want to just assume that someone is going to capture everything the right way. You know, I just want to capture it as well as I can my own way before these kind of things disappear and this way of this new way of life. I don't know. I think that documentary is like works best as like a historical document a lot of the time. And I just feel like the, I, you know, I always say that even if my, even if my movies kind of fail as a memoir or, or a comedy, uh, hopefully they'll at least succeed as just raw footage of uh, New York during a very specific time. Yeah, I mean, I think you you could have a, a fascinating second season that really focuses on this on this time and this moment. Um, so I really hope that you get to make it because I I would really love to watch it. Yeah, that that was one thing I was like worried about is is coming out with the show now. This is all you know. The show is mo- almost all pre coronavirus, and I was afraid that people would not want to time travel back to pre-COVID, you know, and and that people would think it was kind of crass to talk about these really kind of petty things that that don't have as much relevance to the political or, so, you know, social climate right now. But I feel like I was wrong. Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, there's something really almost comforting about watching these uh, these episodes that, that take us back to a, a time that feels suddenly unfamiliar. Yeah, I hope so. But yeah, and but I'll also have the same anxiety about, you know, like, will people like once once maybe a vaccine is farther along, <laughs> yeah. and maybe we're re- reverting to normal ish. Um, will people want to uh, be reminded of this agonizing period that everyone wants to forget? But I'm not going to stop either way. <laughs> so usually on this podcast, I ask comedians about another comedian that's really made them laugh hard in their life. I'm curious, you know, with you um, in terms of comedy and maybe even, you know, we could talk about like documentary comedy. Is there something that that you were really influenced by or that that really has made you laugh in your life that you took something from? Uh, yeah, I one of my favorite uh, filmmakers of all time is this guy, George Kuchar, I don't know, I don't know if you've heard, but he, he's, he's kind of like a seventies B movie filmmaker, but he, he makes these documentaries called, uh, the weather diaries where he just goes to a motel in, uh, 
I think South Dakota and every year and he just tries to document extreme weather but just gets so distracted and makes these really bizarre short films that incorporate, you know, footage he shoots of the news or people around town. He just gets really distracted and doesn't really film the weather. <laughs> and the way it's edited and his sense of humor is unlike anything I've ever seen. And I, I really feel like I connected with it. Um, I don't know if he's a comic, really. <laughs> but maybe he's something. He's doing something similar to what you're doing, which is uh, which is fitting. Yeah, I, re- I really love like what he does. He's he's no longer alive. <laughs> when fans of your show are clamoring for something else to watch when they finish the uh, six episodes, they can seek that out. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> John, thank you so much for for talking with me about the show. And it's just, it's incredible and fascinating and and so funny and great. And uh, I just, I think everyone who has not gotten a chance to see it yet should check it out. So cool. Thank you so much for asking me to do this. And I'm, I'm really glad you connected with it. Yeah. And good luck with everything. And I'll, I'll be looking for that second season. Yeah. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Thank you so much to John Wilson for being my guest on today's show. The season finale of How To with John Wilson airs tonight, Friday, November 27th at 11 p.m. on HBO. And you can stream the entire series right now on HBO Max or On Demand. If you're enjoying this podcast, how about giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts? We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at Claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.